Welcome to the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and we've got another great show as part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living author interview series. Thank you so much for listening today. We've got a great guest who I'll introduce in just a moment, but quickly, if you missed any of the episodes, last week was our 658th episode, and we spoke to author of The Pirate's Wife, the remarkable true story of Sarah Kidd. You can check it out on our website, the amazing story. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Kathy Kleiman about her new book, Proving Ground, a great interview about the first women programmers of the ENIAC computer. Wonderful stuff. If you missed any of these shows, you can go back and check them out along with my entire backlog of shows all free for you there on our website at notold-better.com. And if you leave a review, we will read it at the end of each show. Please leave reviews at Apple Podcasts for us. Today's interview is really amazing and so eye-opening. We are talking with Smithsonian Associate Dr. Michael Brenner. Dr. Michael Brenner will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes for more details. But we have this wonderful interview today with Michael Brenner. The interview today is in anticipation of Michael Brenner's Smithsonian Associates presentation entitled Insurrection in a Bavarian Beer Hall Hitler's Failed Putsch and Its Consequences. In the aftermath of Germany's defeat in World War I and the failed November Revolution of 1918 and 1919, the conservative government of Bavaria identified Jews with left-wing radicalism. Munich became a hotbed of right-wing extremism and synagogues under attack and Jews physically assaulted in the streets. It was here that Adolf Hitler established the Nazi movement, and developed his anti-Semitic ideas. Michael Brenner provides a gripping account for us today of how Bavaria's capital city became the testing ground for Nazism and the final solution. Dr. Michael Brenner will describe in detail an electrifying narrative that takes us through Hitler's return to Munich following the armistice to his calamitous beer hall putsch in 1923. Dr. Brenner demonstrates why the city's transformation is crucial for understanding the Nazi era and the tragedy of the Holocaust. Dr. Brenner tells us how Hitler and his followers terrorized Munich's Jews and were aided by politicians, judges, police, and ordinary residents. Dr. Brenner will show us how the city's Jews responded to the anti-Semitic backlash in many different ways by declaring their loyalty to the state by avoiding public life, or by abandoning the city altogether for a different perspective. February 26, 1919, marked a unique moment in the history of Germany and its Jews. On this cold winter's day, a crowd of 100,000 assembled at Munich's Ostfriedhof Cemetery to mourn Bavarian Prime Minister Kurt Eisner, the first Jewish head of state in German history. Eisner had toppled the Wittelsbach dynasty, which had reigned in Bavaria for seven centuries. He and his socialist government had ruled Bavaria for three months until he was assassinated by a right-wing extremist. Another German Jew, Gustav Landauer, who would himself assume a powerful position in one of two short-lived council republics established in Munich in April of 1919, delivered the eulogy for his friend Eisner. 
Both had long since broken with the Jewish religion of their ancestors, and yet both identified with the values of Jewish tradition as they defined it. Standing before the casket of his murdered friend, Landauer told the crowd, Kurt Eisner, the Jew, was a prophet because he sympathized with the poor and downtrodden and saw the opportunity and the necessity of putting an end to poverty and subjugation. Kurt Eisner, the Jew, usually only his enemies wrapped his nose in his Jewish background. His estate includes a huge file of letters with crude anti-Semitic insults. Landauer, like other revolutionaries, also became the target of anti-Semitic attacks and was gruesomely murdered when the socialist experiment was brought to an end by paramilitary forces in the first days of May 1919. Even among the Jews themselves, the Jewish background of many revolutionaries was a fiercely debated topic. The majority of Bavaria's Jews were decisively opposed to the revolution and sensed that in the, in the end they would be the ones paying the price for the deeds of the Eisners and Landauers. The philosopher Martin Buber, a close friend of Landauers and an admirer of Eisner, had visited Munich at Landauer's invitation in February of 1919. He left Munich on the day Eisner was murdered and summarized his impressions of his visit to the city as follows. As for Eisner, to be with him was to peer into the tormented passions of his divided Jewish soul. Nemesis shone from his glittering surface. He was a marked man. Landauer, by dint of the greatest spiritual effort, was keeping up his faith in him and protecting him, a shield-bearer terribly moving in his selflessness. The whole thing, an unspeakable Jewish tragedy. That, of course, is our guest today, Dr. Michael Brenner, reading from his new book, In Hitler's Munich, Jews, the Revolution, and the Rise of Nazism. Dr. Michael Brenner will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check out our website for more details. Dr. Michael Brenner publishes widely in international media, including the Washington Post, the Times of Israel, and Der Spiegel. Dr. Brenner's voice is heard frequently on PBS and international radio and TV stations. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates author interview series on radio and podcast, Smithsonian Associate. Dr. Michael Brenner. Dr. Michael Brenner, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really wonderful to talk to you. We're going to get into your new book, In Hitler's Munich, Jews, the Revolution, and the Rise of Nazism. But I, I want to talk to you for just a second first about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. I wonder if you'll tell us just briefly about what you're going to talk about and maybe how you'll be using Zoom we're all on Zoom these days to engage our audience. <laughs> sure. Um, so um, I will talk about the book, obviously, uh, which has um, two parts. Uh, one part is the revolution, which happened in Munich in Bavaria, 1918-19. And uh, as it happened, most of the leaders of the revolution happened to be Jewish. So I will talk about this. At the same time, there is a second part to the book, which is the rise of anti-Semitism. 
Uh, and it happened to be the city where Hitler lived at the time and where Hitler became Hitler. So um, that's where the Nazi party started. That's where Hitler became a politician. And uh, one of the questions we uh, might discuss in Zoom, was there a connection between the two? And I think it's pretty complex. It's not such an easy answer. I will use Zoom and um, I will try to visualize a few things that are really interesting. There's interesting um, material available, not just the faces of the people I discuss, but also the street scenes, uh, some of the violence, but also the posters around it. And so hopefully we will have both and, um, you know, we'll have not just the audio, but also a, a visual effect of this lecture. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be fascinating. You, you use the word connection. I, I was struck immediately uh, in reading the book by the analogies uh, to the connection with our own January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C. at the U.S. Capitol. You, you really, Dr. Brenner, I mean, I mean this very seriously. You, you must have had a crystal ball because your book, which is excellent, In Hitler's Munich, Jews, the Revolution and the Rise of Nazism is excellent, getting great reviews. You've just had this wonderful foresight. You, you know, the, the, even the subject of, of Ukraine and what is happening there right now, Ukraine has a Jewish president and you've, you've read so generously from your book. You mentioned Kurt Eisner, the prime minister, a Jew who was assassinated, Karl Landauer, uh, who uh, did the eulogy uh, after Eisner was assassinated. I wonder if you'd Tell us a little bit about this period of World War I with a Jewish prime minister, how unusual uh, that was in Europe at that time and, and even today to have a Jewish elected leader outside of Israel. Um, absolutely. I mean, that was unusual. But let me say first, uh, when I, of course, I didn't have a crystal ball and I didn't have uh, another prophet. Uh, I wish, actually, uh, in retrospect, that that book would not be as relevant to the United States as it became after January 6th. Uh, I did publish an article in Washington Post then pointing to the, you know, to some of the analogies and I'm very careful, history doesn't repeat itself, but there are certain frightening aspects. When I, uh, when I wrote the book, I did not have the United States in mind. When it, and I wrote it first in German. When it came out in English, uh, the English edition came out after January 6th, and I was um, shocked uh, that some of the developments in Germany in the early 1920s reminded me of what is happening or could happen could happen in this country. But back to your question about uh, how unusual it was to have Jewish politicians at the top of a country. Well, first of all, we didn't have, uh, obviously, a Jewish president in the United States yet. Um, in Europe, there were um, two countries that had uh, Jewish politicians as prime ministers or, or in leading positions. And I don't mean converted Jews, Jews who became Christians. Um, but there were a few Jewish leaders in Italy already early in the 19th century and later in France. Um, but these were rare exceptions. And in Germany, the basically the one exception uh, of the leader of a German state, namely Bavaria, which had their own prime ministers, we would perhaps a governor in America, but it was more than a governor, um, was Kurt Eisner in 1918. He was the first head of 
state of a German state and more or less the last one. I mean, there was a mayor of the city-state of Hamburg in the 1960s, if you want the second example, and a very brief lived one in, in, in Prussia in revolutionary times after World War One. but that's it. So basically, Eisner stuck out. Yeah, I, I just thought this was, was fascinating. Again, the title of um, Dr. Brenner's new book is In Hitler's Munich Jews, The Revolution and the Rise of Nazism. Munich, of course, plays this enormous role overshadows everything and and you say in the book that that Munich was this stepping stone for Hitler's rise how so yes very much so um Hitler moved to he was Austrian he moved to Munich before World War One then he was a soldier during World War One and he came back after the war when he returned to Munich, he was a nobody. He was not a politician. We don't even know what his political views were. We only know what his political views became in the fall of 1919 when he first appears as a speaker and also starts to publish articles. Um, but before that, we really don't know. And he comes to Munich in the winter of 1918-19 in the, he returns in the middle of this political chaos um, of a revolution. The 700-year-long uh, monarchy of the Wittelsbach dynasty had been toppled, and now you have a Jewish Prussian socialist as a prime minister in conservative Bavaria. Um, that's what Hitler uh, comes back to. That's the Munich he returns to. It's also a city, like all of Germany, shaken by the by the defeat of World War One, by a deep economic crisis, by despair. And it is in this city, in to be very um, concrete, in the beer cellars of this city, where his rise starts and where he takes over a new fledgling party, which he call renames into the. Um, nationalist socialist social <laughs> I have to say it in German but the National Socialist German Workers Party which we call the Nazi Party and he becomes the leader of this party uh, he later says that the events of the revolution um, made him into this politician and uh, but, but we don't know if that's true he wrote this in Mein Kampf in 1923 a few years later and maybe it was part of his whole, uh, you know, self um, setting himself into stage. We don't really know if that was decisive in 1919, but it could have been, and it certainly played a role. Yeah, and fascinating because Munich was really considered this liberal cosmopolitan, a, a cultural capital, and it transformed into what you, what is known, what, what was called, you, you refer to this too, as the city of Hitler the Jews were blamed for this catastrophic effect. How did that go down? What what was wrapped up in all of this that drove this blame uh, on the Jewish community? Yeah. So so it was not only in Munich but all over Germany that Jews uh, and socialists, both of them, were blamed for the German defeat in World War One. Many Germans thought, oh, the German army. It cannot be that they were defeated in the battle on the battleground. So there must have been this enemy in our midst stabbing the German people in the back. And that's how the stab in the back legend or 
conspiracy developed. Jews were blamed, socialists were blamed by a right-wing conspiracy which became very successful. Munich became a center of this uh, because Hitler and many other leaders of this right-wing movement were happened to be in Munich after World War One, And the Jews feared um, that, well, there is now a socialist Jewish prime minister. He's not part of any organized Jewish community, but who cares? The anti-Semites don't care. They will see him as a Jew. And there was a saying at the same time in in Russia, in Moscow, uh, supposedly by the chief rabbi of Moscow, who said the bro- the Trotskys make the revolution and the Bronsteins will pay the price. The Bronstein was Trotsky's actual name. He was a Russian Jew. So the Eisners make the revolution, but the, you know, uh, Bernsteins and Frankels and Levies and Cohens of the Munich Jewish community will pay the price, even though they're not even in favor of the revolution. They're not socialist. Many German Jews were monarchists. Uh, but um, if there was one Jew at the top, all Jews were often identified with them by the anti-Semitic, um, by the growing anti-Semitic right-wing population. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Dr. Michael Brenner. Dr. Michael Brenner has written the new book, In Hitler's Munich Jews, The Revolution and the Rise of Nazism. Dr. Brenner will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check out the website for more details, links to where you can find out more information about Dr. Brenner's Smithsonian Associates presentation, the title of which is Insurrection in a Bavarian Beer Hall, Hitler's Failed Putsch, and its consequences. Tell us what you mean about insurrection in a Bavarian beer hall. So the insurrection was very real. That happened, uh, that's the end of my book. Uh, In November of 1923, um, Hitler and his associates marched into a political event, into a rally of the then leader of Bavaria, the then Prime Minister of Bavaria, now we're in 1923, five years after the revolution. And he marched in with his pistol, uh, firing a few shots into the ceiling, and uh, basically um, took the leader of Bavaria hostage and came back with him and a few other leaders after a few minutes, and they declared Hitler the leader, new leader, um, not only Bavaria, but he would march now to Berlin and take over Germany. So that was what's often referred to as the beer hall putsch or the c- attempted coup in the Munich beer hall. Um, it failed because uh, overnight when Hitler tried to Hitler and his associates tried to take control over Munich, 
um, the Bavarian conservative leaders uh, turned around and were able to fight against Hitler, willing, first of all, willing and able. And um, a few of Hitler's associates were killed in, in that these street unrests. Hitler himself was hurt. He actually dislocated his shoulder. Um, he hid in a lake, uh, near a lake, uh, not far from Munich, uh, but he was caught and then brought to, uh, to justice, to trial. Uh, justice is a little exaggerated because uh, the, um, the, the the judge was very favorable of Hitler and his associates, and he got away with less than one year in prison for this attempted insurrection. Well, if that rings a bell, that's okay. Unfortunately, it might ring a bell in America of 2022. Your book shows how varied the Jewish community was in Munich at the time. Intellectuals, writers, bourgeois, business people, socialists and revolutionaries. Um, uh, monarchists and republicans there were prosperous families that had assimilated into into the culture however again it, this just struck me as being just interesting that even with all of these powerful connected knowledgeable people they still were unable to overcome uh, this period the very dark period of anti-semitism why not what was there just this tide that was just so so overwhelming? Were they just not as organized as they needed to be? What was it that was just standing in their way and obstacles that they were just unable to overcome? Yeah, the Jewish population the Jewish population is very small, uh, and they would have had maybe a better chance to withstand the danger and the threats of anti-Semitism had the general population in Munich been more outspoken, more active in the fight against anti-Semitism. That's really the question to ask. Uh, the problem is that in Munich in the early 1920s, the major institutions, uh, the most important ones in the city, uh, the politicians, the church leaders, meaning the Catholic Church in Munich, the, um, the police force, and also the justice system, the courts, were not entirely, but to large um, to a large extent, um, anti-Semitic, or at least sharing some of the anti-Semitic stereotypes. That, you know, concern, definitely the police force, some of the leaders of the Munich police became, were early associates of Hitler, became um, leaders of the Nazi movement later. Uh, we're talking about the early 1920s now. Um, some of the like the the justice minister of Bavaria later became Hitler's first uh, justice minister in 1933 in Germany. Um, and even the um, the cardinal, Archbishop Faulhaber, he was definitely not a supporter of the Nazis, and he did not support this kind of racist anti-Semitism. But he too shared a lot of the more traditional um, Christian anti-Jewish stereotypes, which we can detect in a lot of his private notes, which are available now. So it was a very, um, there was a, a kind of anti-Jewish atmosphere in the city. Uh, and Hitler's influence also was rising in the early 20s. And that made Thomas Mann, the most important writer of Germany at the time, um, speak already in the summer of 1923 uh, of Munich as the city of Hitler. Again, we are with Dr. Michael 
Brenner, Dr. Brenner has joined us today so generously, read from his new book, In Hitler's Munich, Jews, the Revolution and the Rise of Nazism. Dr. Brenner, we, we sure appreciate your time. I know, I know you are very busy. This is my final question for you today. I, I think, you know, we're witnessing some of these similar attitudes, sadly, the, this, this right-wing extremism. Um, synagogues, Jews are under attack physically and uh, been assaulted uh, in the streets. Do you think we're learning from history or are, or, or, or are we just repeating? Are, are we doing any better at this? Are you optimistic? <laughs> if you had asked me two years, three, I mean, um, let's say five years ago, I would have probably said, um, I would have probably said yes more than today. Mm-hmm. Um, not terribly optimistic at this moment in history. I don't think history repeats itself. I don't think we'll see uh, you know, the same happening in America or anywhere, uh, what happened in Germany in the 1920s and 30s. Um, but it's history, history rhymes, and we, we, we really uh, can learn from looking at what happened in Munich and all of Germany in the 1920s. Not that there was the rise of um, a far right-wing movement, that there was a belief in conspiracies. Yes, all that rings bell today as well. But mainly, I would say, the naivete of conservative forces in Munich in the 1920s and in Berlin in the 1930s, who thought that they were able, as they would call it, to contain the radical forces, to contain Hitler, to cling to power or come to power with the help of somebody they did not take seriously somebody they looked down upon, but they thought with Hitler's help, these conservative forces and right-wing forces would be able to stick to power and in the end get rid of Hitler and the most extreme forces. Of course, it came, the opposite happened. Um, Hitler and the extremes got rid of the conservatives and the moderate right-wingers. And I think that's, for me, the main lesson today from from German history in this period, um, I think it's 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 those forces who have to learn that in a way they're shoveling their own graves too. That they that this kind of conservatism is not being um, is not being um, served by those um, at, by those questionable allies. And I, I there I see parallels uh, today we have to be we have really to beware of conspiracy theories of right-wing extremists and we should not even try nobody who believes in democracy should try to become bedfellows of anti-democratic forces for the sake of clinging to power well said thank you dr michael brenner Uh, thank you for for your time today. Thanks for this wonderful book. Again, the title of Dr. Brenner's book is In Hitler's Munich, Jews, the Revolution, and the Rise of Nazism. Dr. Brenner will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates. Coming up, please check the website for more details. The title of Dr. Brenner's presentation is Insurrection in a Bavarian Beer Hall, Hitler's Failed Putsch and Its Consequences. 
The book is excellent. It's getting great reviews. I just highly recommend it to our audience, Dr. Brenner. I know you say you don't have a crystal ball, but while it's a wonderful book, well-researched on history, there are a lot of things to beware about, and uh, the book does make some interesting uh, parallels. But thank you so much for your time. And um, please come back as, as you continue to work on, on this subject and others. We would love to have you back, Dr. Brenner. This is a fascinating subject for our audience, and thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Dr. Michael Brenner for joining me today and his reading from his new book in Hitler's Munich for Dr. Brenner's excellent preparation, which only makes my job easier. Making my job easy, and thanks as well to our wonderful Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. Thanks to you. Our equally wonderful audience, please be safe, and I emphasize this because we need to all be safe by eliminating assault rifles. Assault rifles should only be in military hands. They are killing our children and grandchildren in the very place they learn, school. Please, let's do better by eliminating assault rifles. Let's talk about better, the not-old-better show. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next week on Radio and Podcast.